Now it is time to stand for the reading of God's Word. From the Gospel of John, a focus upon the crucifixion of Jesus. John chapter 19, starting at verse 16 down through verse 30. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, and the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father God, may your Holy Spirit, who is with us in this place, be at work in our hearts and our minds, among those who are gathered here, those who are watching now, and those who will watch later. Lord, we pray that in your divine will and your sovereignty, the work of your Spirit will speak to each of us, Lord, and I pray that we will listen. I pray that the the, the distractions of our minds, that the disobedience of our hearts will all be pushed to the side, at least for a few moments, as we avail ourselves to you in this time of worship, through prayer, through praise, through the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that as you speak, we will listen, we will be drawn close to you, Lord. I pray not only for information, but transformation. Lord, I pray not only for new knowledge, but I pray for our hearts 
to be drawn closer to you. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, O oh Father God, is lifted up and our eyes are transfixed on him and what he has done for us according to your will. These things we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please be seated? I'm not going to be dealing with the details of the crucifixion. Just suffice it to say they are hideous. They are inhumane. They are inconscionable. They are ugly. They are awful. But it's a reality of history. Jesus died on a cross for us. But why did Jesus have to die? Years ago, I was talking to someone who has been sharing their faith in Christ with a relative that relative was not a believer in Jesus per se. And when our, my friend got to the point of saying, well, Jesus died on a cross for you, their response to that was, I never asked him to. I never asked him to. Why would Jesus do that for me? You see, this person didn't understand the gospel and didn't have a context of the wider, the wider picture the wider story going on. Yes, none of us asked Jesus to die on a cross for us because we don't think we needed it. We often think that we're good enough or that we'll get by or that we'll all work out in the end. We like to trust our chances because we are better than most, right? And we all know God grades on a curve. Grading on the curve may not have served us well in school, but it'll serve us well in eternity. That's what our hope is, right? Well, God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on a cross. So why did Jesus have to die, even if we didn't ask him to? Well, it's a good thing that God is in charge. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was a foreordained event for history. It was a foreordained, a pre-planned, predetermined event in accordance with God's will. And this is such an important sentence, such an important concept, because it means that Jesus was not accidentally killed. It does not mean that the death of Jesus was a tragedy, although it has tragic elements. The death of Jesus does not mean that he was a failure for being a teacher who got killed. It was not a failure. Jesus' crucifixion was not a decision of the Jewish religious leaders, even though that's what they wanted. Jesus' crucifixion was not Pilate's decision, even though he signed off on it. You, they, you see, they were merely players pawns in God's grand scheme for salvation. The death of Jesus was not the result of any kind of human or satanic usurpation, usurping of God's sovereignty and will. God the Son died because of the will of God the Father. And it was the plan of God before he even created humanity. 
Before the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before those words, there was in the mind of God a plan, a contingency plan to rescue and redeem a creation that would rebel against him. Before he even created humanity, God planned for us to sin, to rebel, to disobey him, to displace him as God. The absolutely beautiful, powerful translation of this one passage in particular from the New Living Translation, I love it. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, not 14, 7, by the way, in your notes. Mr. Cole in there. Even before he made the world, before he made the world, God loved us. Before he created us, he loved us. Before he created us, he chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son, Jesus. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. That's why Jesus died. And because of our sin, of course, we were in no place to ask him to do that for us. We were incapable. We were incompetent. We were incoherent. But God loved us anyway and did what we needed in spite of ourselves. And that plan was necessary because of the penalty of human sin, something we so easily dismiss, especially in the self and in the lives of others, but it's something we place so heavily upon those who we don't know through social media and other things. You see, sin is everybody else's issue and problem. But the Bible says sin is the same for every person. Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's singular restriction, the very one thing he forbid, it wasn't like it was a long list. It wasn't a difficult list. It was one thing. When you want a snack, don't go there. There's 76,000 other choices. Take one instead. But no, you see, the one piece of forbidden fruit, the forbidden produce from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what would make Eve and Adam like God in knowledge. And that desire, the desire, the human desire to be like God to be in control, to be self-contained, to be the one who wills and acts. That desire, that desire in order to be satiated led them to partake of that fruit. 
And in doing so, it was no longer trusting in God or submitting to God. It was elevating the self above God. It was rejecting God's rule, not just his rules, by the way. We think that's what it often is. It's just, it's just do the right things and don't do the bad things. But reality of wanting to do the, the do's and not doing the don'ts is not the issue. It's who is God? What is our life lived under God's authority? And when we displace God as the God of our life, we elevate the self, and that is truly the sin. Rejecting God's rule separated Eve and Adam and their offspring, including us. The separation was spiritual from the giver of life, the one who had breathed life into them. Sin had blocked the relationship. And then the expulsion from the garden blocked them from that tree which seemed to be able to produce eternal life, the tree of life. And as we were blocked from a relationship with God, we were blocked from that source of eternal life. That's the record of Genesis. That's the meta-narrative for humanity and why we find ourselves where we find ourselves. With so much sin, stupidity, selfishness, and everything else. The book of Romans sums it up in very one simple verse, five, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread or came to all people because all sinned. Are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners? The answer is yes. No need to quibble about theological finer points. Yes. Doesn't matter if we drove, Ubered, or flew to the place we all ended up at the same location. God's plan, that plan devised in his mind before creation ever appeared would be worked out over many millennia, thousands of years actually. God's plan included a prophecy, a prophecy to one day reverse the curse, to no longer let his human creation align with the adversary but instead belong to him. The adversary, Satan, would be defeated. The plan included a promise, a promise to a man named Abram who would leave his land of origin and go to a different place. And through him, a great nation would descend. And in the midst of that great nation, from within that nation would come the one who would redeem. A prophecy, a promise, a people the Israelites, the people of God. It would include a place, the promised land. It would include a legal structure, a political structure, so to speak. A law, a covenant agreement where the people would be bonded to God as, with God as their king in sole authority over them. The people would reject that kingship, wanting human kings instead. But the covenant was still intact. When God makes a promise, he keeps it and he fulfills it even when we don't. That plan would include a religious system, a purification system. Not only the legal 
um, the legal demands and requirements, but a system of temple sacrifice. The taking of the life of certain animals for certain types of disobedience. The draining of blood, the cutting, and then the sacrificing, the burning of flesh. Also an awful, horrific, inhumane, disgusting practice. But it shows the price of sin. The price of sin requires life. Sin brings death human death and death to creation. That system of understanding that there are consequences for human sin that are far beyond just the self, the consequences are societal, systemic. That was the plan of God. But this system was only a shadow. It was only an illusion of the sacrifice necessary to purify and to atone for sin. In the book of Hebrews, we read, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The death of all those animals served a purpose but forgiveness and purification of sin was not it. It was to symbolize the scope of sin, the depths of sin, the price of sin, the penalty of sin, the cost of sin, the ugliness of sin. And they also foreshadowed an ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Son of God. Jesus' death was the ultimate payment for human sin, the death of Jesus as a substitute sacrifice, you see, perfectly fulfills the aspects, the, 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 the aspects of God's nature and character, his divine essence, his ontological being, so to speak, with big $10 words. You see, God is love. Love is not letting a person get away with whatever they want. Love is doing what is best for them, whether they ask for it or not, whether they want it or not. You see, God is love, but God is also holy, which means he is other. He is set apart from human creation. And in his holiness, he is perfectly pure. Sin cannot be in his presence. But God is also just, which in God's justice, sin must be paid for and atoned for. And being made in the image of God, we have that within ourselves, right? When we are wronged, what do we demand? Justice. Oh, they're gonna pay. How dare they do that to me? How dare they say that to me? How dare they treat me like that? They're not gonna get away with it. Because naturally within us, we have a residual imprint of the justice of God. We demand that for ourselves, personally. We demand it as a society. Those who do wrong, those who inflict harm, those who oppress, those who do injustice, we demand justice. And we know that human justice is imperfect, but we still crave it, we desire it, we need it, because we know that wrong must be paid for and atoned for. So God is perfect in his love, 
perfect in his holiness and perfect in his justice. All three of those aspects of his nature, his essence and his character have to be fulfilled in sin being atoned for. As a side note, by the way, Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, in the sacrifice of his son Jesus, did not pay a ransom to Satan for our souls. God did not pay off Satan. You see, our sin is against God. Our debt was to God. God himself had to pay our debt. There's his love. The paying of our debt, there is his justice. Being cleansed from sin forever, there's his holiness. The ransom that Jesus offered himself to be is a ransoming of us from our slavery to sin. Now, yes, Satan is over sin. He's the the lead of that. But we are willingly, willfully complicit. The soul who sins is the soul who dies. He who sins is a slave to sin, Jesus says. So when God buys us back, he is not paying off Satan. He is actually repaying the debt to himself from our sin, his perfect love. And Jesus' death is the ultimate proof of God's love. God demonstrates, God declares, God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hopelessly and helplessly in debt, unable to pay, unable to atone for ourselves, Jesus, atoned for us. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 4.10. So now we know why Jesus had to die. He had to die to pay for sin. But why does death have to be so gruesome, so awful, so horrific, so violent, so ugly? Crucifixion is one of the most horrific and inhumane methods of public torture and execution ever devised. Why was Jesus subjected to this? And it's actually amazing because the crucifixion of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The details are very subdued. It basically just says Jesus was crucified because the, the act of going through that was so horrific, it was never talked about. It was so brutal and so ugly. It was just simply summarized. Jesus had to go through such an awful amount of suffering because part of Jesus' mission was to become human. Jesus being subjected to such a violent death is how God identifies with the absolute depths of what it means to be human. The human life is one of suffering. The human life is one of inhumanity and injustice to one another. That's what human history has been from the beginning of sin. And in Jesus' 
God himself was able to experience the depths of such humanness. It was the full extent. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a ser- the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus suffering such an awful death epitomizes both God's wrath against sin and the sin that must be punished, but also the depth of human rebellion and hatred to God. It is pure awfulness and ugliness. On that subject, there's a currently in vogue argument or attack against the Christian faith. It's very, very popular online if you want to sit through a bunch of insipid videos and people who really don't know what they're talking about. But a a very potent, let me rephrase that, it's a very impotent argument actually, but it's a very prominent, prevalent argument that's being lapped up by a lot of people, is that the essence of the Christian message of Jesus, the Son of God, dying for the sins of humanity is an actual example of cosmic child abuse. God the Father abusing his son. And so the the purveyors of this heresy will really jump on that. It plays on our sensibilities and our, our newly enlightened minds. The problems are many, and the, the arguments against such insipid argumentation are rife, and they're just they're plentiful, but the two main responses, first off, they have no concept of the gospel. They have no concept of the nature of God. They don't understand or embrace the gospel themselves. But the two basic quick responses are, first off, that they don't understand the Trinity because Jesus is God himself. This is not God subjecting an inferior, weaker being. It is God himself taking our sin, suffering on our behalf. And we also see that God the Son chose this avenue, this path, this cup. And that's the scriptural word, the the cup of suffering. Jesus chose to sacrifice himself He was not manipulated. He was not controlled. He was not tricked. He was not subjected or oppressed to injustice. He chose himself to sacrifice. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus said. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus willingly subjected himself to such awful pain and suffering on our behalf to pay for our sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for our sin. You see, there's really no other avenue to atone for human sin. You see, the law was given, but the law only tells us what sin is. The law reveals sin. It can't repeal it. 
Because even if we obey the law outwardly, we're disobeying inwardly. Let's be honest. What is your very first natural inclination when the light turns yellow? It's to hit the gas. I'm not going to have a stupid light tell me how to live my life. But what do we do? We hit the brake. Most of you. I've driven enough in this town. I know that a lot of you don't do that. What is your natural reaction to being told what to do by the government, by a boss, by a spouse? Be telling me what to do, how to live my life. I am the king of this castle, right? I am the master of my own domain. See, that's what we, we, we have that as our natural reaction. At the end, we say, yes, dear. And we pay our taxes. And we submit to the regulations and everything else. But inside, inside we're raging against the man, right? Oh, no, I'm sorry, that was very sexist. We're raging against the people. I'm not sure what the new term is because it's all stupid. But the law only reveals it. The apostle Paul says, he goes, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said don't covet. And then I said, well, what's coveting? Oh, it means it's desiring something else. It's desiring something that someone else has. Oh, oh, yeah, I never noticed that before. Man, what they have is really nice. Man, that GMC, ooh, that is sweet. Wish that was mine. All of a sudden, I'm coveting. Didn't know it was wrong until the law says it's wrong. The law reveals sin. It cannot repeal it. So no matter how many laws we obey, we're still never righteous. We're never perfect. We're never holy. We're never pure. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3. We also see that there was no other path to atone for human sin because the blood of bulls and goats will not get it done. Animal sacrifice is insufficient for human sin. Once again, the author of Hebrews, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because our sin is ours. We have to own it. And it has to be atoned for. Jesus perfectly submitted his will to God the Father's will. In this way, he repudiated the choice made by Adam and Eve. The self-will they expressed and demonstrated rebellion to God, Jesus reversed that by perfectly aligning his will with God the Father's will. Once again, the book of Hebrews, and by that will, by that choice of Jesus, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. And that's the gospel. The good news 
that by uniting with Jesus through simple faith, believing him, trusting him, giving the allegiance of our heart, the alignment of our heart to him, we receive God's love. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and new life is transposed upon us. It is given to us when we simply believe and trust. We may not have asked for it. We may not have wanted it. But once we realize it's on our behalf and we need it, we didn't deserve it, but it's a testament, a testimony of God's love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, we embrace and we yield. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sin offering, a sin sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. This is why Jesus is so important. It's why we orient our worship to him. It's why we look to him because there's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. It's the name of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross and his resurrection. In Jesus' death is our life. And that's what we owe him, our very lives.